Yeah. Special. It's a special, Nubs. Well, we are special. No. No question about that. Nubs is um, actually at the moment eating an apple, in case you hear any chomping. A glorious pink lady, which is the finest of all apples, in my opinion. I would agree. A nice, crisp pink lady. So, welcome to what is uh, episode 31 here on Two Twins in an Album. And in case you couldn't already tell, uh, we got a little special going on, a little something special. Do you think people miss the herb, though? You know, like it's kind of become a signature uh, of our whole introduction. So, what we thought we would do is a little something different and we reached out to some of our uh listeners and uh you know posed the question do you have questions because we kind of thought a little little listener q and a might be a good time had by all so we got a bunch of questions which is fantastic people actually took us up on this and we thought we'd just maybe do a little you know Q and A today. What do you think, Dub? I was just thoroughly impressed with the amount of questions we received. You know, we just, what we just did a couple posts and sends about it, and uh, the uh, inquiry started pouring in. Well, you're going to be even more impressed by the amount of people here to 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 listen and and hear these. I mean, this is kind of this is breaking stuff. I mean, let's just let me just give you some quick. Uh, I'll just open the mic here to all the people here in attendance that are kind of interested. Um, I mean, as you can, as you can tell, um, as we walk out to take the podium, a lot of photographers and media and people that, you know, really going out of their way to um, hear what we have to say today. So this is a big story. You know, we've got, most of the major networks gathered and uh, it's a gaggle. Is that what they call it? A gaggle? a gaggle. But well, you know, T hang on a quick second. Let me post for this picture. Go ahead. Yeah, please. Yeah. I mean, do what you got to do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please. Only one picture of nubs, please. Only one picture of nubs, please. Thank you. Thank now you. that was a keeper. That, that was a, that's a framer. Sorry. Right I just had to, but uh, I, I think I'm again, we're going to get into it, but the, the diversity within the questions is really, I think, reflective of Two Twins in an Album. You know, we're getting questions from all sorts of different angles and perspectives. And, I, you know, I hope we have coherent answers for these wonderful questions. I hope we do them justice. We probably won't. But um, it is cool, that, you know, and I think part of what, what we have heard, uh, for, you know, feedback and anecdotally and everything is, is that. You know, we have kind of tried to, I think, give a lot of different listeners, a lot of different interests a look. I mean, shoot, we did little Phil Collins. We did some pretty intense prog stuff, you know, with King Crimson and Tubular and did some metal, you know, did some pop. I think we've covered several decades. So, yeah, I I think that... uh, Hopefully part of what was cool about us uh, reaching out for questions and topics of interest is that people felt like anything was fair game. You know, that's, that's been our goal here on two twins and an album, you know, on the old podcast here is to uh, make sure that we're spicing things up with some variety, 
through through 30 episodes. Hopefully we've done that. You got to keep it spicy. T got to keep it spicy. You sure do, buddy. If it's not new, it's through as the great Chris Rock said. So let's get to it. I mean, I I've got, there's no rhyme or reason to this. We really haven't uh, rehearsed this as per usual. So I'm just going to kind of pick and choose. There's really no order to it as per usual, two twins in an album execution, really no organization looseness, if you will. Yeah. So, so why don't we just start with a few things and get, get us cooking here, nub. And I'll, I'll kind of, you know, I've got the list here, so I'll kind of pose the questions. And and by the way, we should we should thank. There are a lot of people that submitted. We're not going to attach a name to every question, but uh, several listeners. We we had Travis Meeks is overrated. We had Sam F. You know, we had Kim Kimmers B, uh, which is which is great. Lobo certainly with some submissions. Uh, who else? Nub. Who else did we hear from? We had yeah, you know, Billy Ray's. We had uh, Wrestler. We had Larue. Yeah. A lot of our, a lot of our regular peeps. Yeah, so so definite, you know, shout outs and thank yous, but so so these came from various places and literally I'm just going to, you know, pick things out and cross them out, but uh let's start with this one. How about uh first album ever purchased? So, oh, this would be like with my own money. More many. many. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do what did you what do you first remember purchasing? Okay, easily. And this would have been at Repeat the Beat in downtown yeah. Plymouth, Michigan, which is naturally our like second home when we were growing up, right? But certainly remember one of the early visits there going in and buying the cassette tape of Def Leppard Adrenalize, which again mm. was an album that we did in episode four, I want to say three, maybe. That was the the first time I remember walking in sort of on my own, taking out my own wallet and paying cash for that particular album. And it was during the Plymouth, Michigan Fall Festival, which was you know a big deal. And this would have been my sixth grade year mm-hmm. was when that came out, came out that fall. So because you've talked about Quiet Riot Metal Health and I got naked eyes. But that was like a Christmas when we were five, maybe. Yeah. Right. And those were actual LPs. But okay. So that's the first one you remember purchasing. Mine, I actually pretty distinctly remember this um, because I went to repeat the beat. And then afterwards, I went to the uh, ice cream place, uh, the Dairy King over there, as the Michiganders say it. I bought two CDs. And these were, these were definitely, as I recall, the first, you know, proactive CD purchases that are legit, right? That means it's not like, you know, mom and dad taking us to the record store and, you know, paying for it. These were ones that I walked in and I walked out with these two records. And the first was ACDC Back in Black. And the second was Pearl Jam 10. Now I bought Back in Black because... And I was taking, I was starting to take bass lessons around this time. And, and the first song I learned on the bass, I think I've talked about my short, short-lived uh, career of taking lessons because all I wanted to do is learn songs. Uh, Back in Black was one of the first, you know. And then the Pearl Jam thing, honestly, I think I just bought it to kind of be cool. I, I think I just bought it because I had heard about this band and people were like, this Pearl Jam band is so good. I'm not even sure if I liked it that much or um 
I think history would suggest that you didn't like it very much. Well, in, you, you know, you spent the last 20 plus years ripping on Pearl Jam. Well, but I, but I actually really do like 10. I'm not an early Pearl Jam hater, but that, you know, that record was something. It had the really thick booklet that came with it. And, and these were back with the tall box and it had that pink cover of the band, like, you know, with their arms up. I mean, it was, that was a pretty cool purchase around that time, you know, but, uh, yeah, those are the first two that I can recall. Uh, let's see. What do we got? Oh, Nubs, here's a question for you, buddy. How the hell can drummers independently control their hands and feet? And then if they sing too? Shit, that's three things at once. What the hell kind of strange voodoo magic is that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so a drumming question here, Nub, for you. So it's a great uh, question. I, I certainly can't speak to the singing portion of that, as we all know. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But in terms of kind of the... Although you have done some background, because actually you do have quite a nice falsetto. So, and you've done some background vocals while drumming, haven't you? Yes. Yep. I've done that yeah. before. In spots. Did some lead singing on a song here or there and on, on one album that, that I made, but... Yeah, for for the most part, though, didn't do a lot of drumming and singing at the same time, but some background stuff. But, you know, how do you describe a drummer's multi kind of activity? I, I would say there's probably, like all musicians, there's probably a certain chip in the brain, yeah, a certain ingredient that's there. And it's probably there long before, you know, you're sort of of this earth. But for drummers, I think it has something to do with sort of hyperactivity and movement. You know, uh, most drummers, including myself, are just constantly moving. And if you're not in motion, you don't feel like you're in rhythm. Even just, and I'm not just talking about playing your instrument. I'm talking about the, the daily aspect of, of a given even work day or something. I mean, if I'm sitting still for too long, it's like, what am I doing? And if I am sitting still, I'm certainly bouncing my knee or tapping the desk or whatever yeah. with some sort of rhythm. So I think that drummers that are that are natural with it you're born with a sort of metronome in your head yeah you walk to it you know you kind of think to it and therefore you just have to engage your body and all of that even when you're not behind a kit i mean that that's the thing i would say just if you spent five minutes in my brain which is a scary place to be when not behind the drums i'm still very much drumming if i'm listening to music my foot's doing the bass drum and my left foot's doing the hi-hat and so yeah, I think you you're you have an innate sense of movement. And if that movement is coordinated, then you can play the drums because you got to get all four things going in the same cadence and in the same rhythm, you know? So it's a great question. The singing thing though does amaze me. I mean, I do think about the amazing drummers who can play and sing on cue. The guy that always comes to mind, it's not the obvious answer, is uh Dean Castronovo, who it was the drummer for Journey hmm. years before he ran into some personal problems. He is an incredible singer. His voice sounds just like Steve Perry. And when Journey was going through its singer issues, he would take the lead vocals on some Journey songs while he was playing. You've got to watch the clips. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. You know, it's, it's like any, uh, I think, just musicianship as a whole. It's like uh, sports. You know, you got some people that are able to work super, super hard at it and become good kind of off of just sheer 
hard work. You've got people who just think in certain shapes and forms and colors and (laughs) whatever it might be. It's like any form of artistry where you just do have that chip in your brain where you can pick something up and just kind of play it and do it pretty well. Where you get the elite players are the ones that have both, right? I mean, the the ones that have that talent and and it's just it's just like sports. The ones that are talented and also work the hardest end up being superstars. And that's no different in music. I mean, even, you know, with the guitar, there are some I mean, Steve Lukather is a freak talent, but he worked his hind ass off at becoming the player that he is. So, you know, you can't just have one or the other, you know, you can, if you have the talent, you can sit down behind the drums kind of like I do and fake your way through it and kind of sound like, you know what you're doing. Same on the guitar. You could pick it up and play fine, but you're not going to reach next level until you really dedicate yourself to putting in hours and hours and hours of, you know, developing the craft. So Interesting stuff. Yeah. Drumming is always fascinating for those of us where it's not really, I mean, for me, it's kind of a secondary thing, but for you, it's primary and always interesting. I think. And, and we're bizarre people. people too, drummers. Like we're oh, not, yeah. we're not normal people. No. So that, that, let's, let's make sure that's in there. Too. No, I mean, you said five minutes in your brain or I think that's like four and a half minutes too long. <laughs> yeah. No question. In your no brain. Right. No um, let's see here. Here's a good one. How how would you rank the big four Seattle bands and why? So obviously this is talking about uh, Nirvana, the aforementioned Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Allison Chains. I believe did I get the did I get the big four right? Yeah, I was gonna say I'll put Heart first, and yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right, (laughs) exactly. You know, I this one for me is actually um, it's really not that difficult. It's it's kind of a Question that on its face, probably a lot of people rightly so struggle to rank and categorize. But, you know, for me, the easy number one here would be Allison Chains. And that's just because of the, I mean, if you go back, they were an incredibly unique um, original band as far as the, the vocal treatments and harmonies, the, the style and, and sort of sludgy minor nature of it that there really hadn't been a band like that before you know and they kind of came on with man in the box and wood and some of these songs that by their standards were a little bit more i suppose catchy and up tempo and had some pop sensibility which they were always great at that but if you really dig into their album work um, the things that they were doing compared to the other three, I would say were completely original and not that the other three weren't doing some original things cause they were. Um, but I think if you're looking at who really stood apart, um, within those four, I would put Allison chains first. I would probably put Nirvana second just because, uh, of the uniqueness there as well. The, I mean, we talked about it in episode one, you know, in utero, the ability to combine, you know, pop and Beatles sensibilities with, you know, you'd mentioned that Kurt was into King Crimson and you can hear some kind of, you can hear some experimental things uh, within that, that started to kind of work their way into Nirvana's music, especially toward the end. And, you know, I just, I love Kurt as a, I don't, I don't like him as a whiner, but I love him as a guitar player and as a, 
um, figure. You know, I continue to think he's really important. I would put Soundgarden third, I, you know, a little bit hit or miss. I mean, I don't think Soundgarden always got it right. Um, but you know, super unknown was, was pretty amazing. I think the production on that album was as important as the composition and the performance, frankly, but you know, great band and, you know, but I'd probably have them third and then I'd have Pearl Jam last. Uh, and it's not that they're terrible. It's just, I would put them fourth on that list. What would you say, Nub? This one's pretty easy. Although I, the, the top two have changed a little bit, uh, over time because a big part of this answer for me is just about who has stayed together. You know, who has found a way to remain prolific and keep the thing going. Yeah. Number four is Nirvana. Now, even if Nirvana <laughs> was still going, I still would have the number four because I think they're one of the most overrated bands of all time musically. Mm. I think they get way too much credit. I think if Kurt Cobain had lived, the band wouldn't have lasted much longer and they would be more of an afterthought. But because he died and the way he died and the age he died at, I think there's a, an, a memorialism that happens there, if that's even a word, that is way too strong. And so Nirvana, solid number four. That'll probably never move. Soundgarden, three. I, I agree with your assessment completely. Soundgarden is, you know, a really important band in our history, but also very spotty. You know, there were just moments where, like the very early stuff, I really don't dig. You know, Super Unknown is probably the most complete album, but even that has a couple things on it where it's like, whoa. So I think and the other was- thing, I'm going to piss somebody off by saying this. They really weren't that great of a live band. I mean, they were pretty sloppy. I saw them a couple of times and it was, they were just really loud and, you know, not particularly intricate and messy. And yeah, I, I was not impressed with, with Soundgarden live. And Cornell really couldn't pull it off live. I mean, I saw, yeah. I saw Audio Slave a couple of times and it was the same thing. I mean, his sounded great in the studio because it was the studio, but really didn't do the thing live. In any way, that was anything other than a bit disappointing. And he's had some live performance. I mean, you you know, the guy can sing. There's no question because he's done the acoustic thing. And it seemed like later on as he, you know, started to get kind of older, he maybe he got into warming up or into the sort of uh, mechanics of it better because, you know, I mean, the guy certainly can sing. But yeah, it seemed like during the Soundgarden days, he would just kind of go out there and just kind of howl and it didn't always work for sure so soundgarden three two and one are pretty interchangeable i'm gonna have alice in chains two mostly because the original lineup is not you know still going but i actually think i might like this version better it's just a little bit wow more soulful um, yeah yeah it's a little happier you know it's not <laughs> quite as like heroin it is induced i mean it's really good william campbell's fabulous you know yeah. and i yeah. i finally got to go see allison chains a couple of years ago on the rainer frog tour it was awesome they sounded as crisp as you would hope and jerry cantrell still sounds and looks great and it was just kind of amazing to see them and and give them credit for continuing to make really strong records i mean the last two or three allison chains albums have been as good as anything they've done so give that band a ton of credit and and echo everything that you said by putting them number one in terms of what they brought to the table. And then number one, I would say Pearl Jam, just purely for longevity, staying together, being prolific, 
there are a million things that could have come along and broke up that band. Primarily Eddie Vedder's kind of startup. I mean, how many other bands would have had a front man who would have had the ego to say, I'm out. I don't want to share royalties with you guys. I'm going to go do my own thing. That never happened. You know, the band has remained a unit. They seem to be doing it for the right reasons. Yes, their output in the last few years has been, shall we say, inconsistent, but they're still a vibrant touring force. They still bring it every night they play. They can make an arena feel like a club. And, you know, I, I still love Pearl Jam, maybe just as much for what they represent and the fact that they're still doing what they do versus, you know, how great or not great their recorded output has been. Here's a good one here. I, I know exactly who this one came from. Uh, Nubs, Rob Halford or Tim the Ripper Owens? <laughs> <laughs> who are you going with on that one? I, do you have who this came from? You just said you know it, right? Yeah, this, this came from Lub. Oh, did it? Indeed, indeed. Okay. I mean, who, who else would ask such an amazing, obscure question? <laughs> I love it. So if we're talking about, you know, who's the best? Judas Priest frontman, then it's clearly Halford. But I'm thinking that I'm thinking that Lobo might have a little soft spot for Tim the Ripper Owens. Well, you know? likely, very likely. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing that in the question. But uh, yeah, I'd have to go with Halford, and all with the you know asterisk that I am not at all a big Judas Priest fan. I own British Steel because it's British Steel, and I listen to it very infrequently. But you know, if I did my list of favorite metal bands from the 80s, Priest would actually be really low on the list. I, I've never really bought into it. But if I had to choose, I would definitely say Rob Halford. But I've had the same argument with people about Iron Maiden because Iron Maiden had a different singer before Bruce Dickinson for the first couple albums. And the albums are a little more punky and a little more raw. And I might like them a little bit more than the rest of the Maiden catalog. So I'm with Lobo. I'm like trying to have a discerning ear on which of the two singers, even if, you know, kind of the first one to come along didn't have such a long run. But yeah, I'd have to go with Rob Halford on this one. But I look forward to hearing her response to this. And I, <laughs> I'm sure it will be pretty detailed. So making sure, I think I have this right. It was Halford, then the Ripper came in, and then Halford came back. Is that right? And, and he's, to this day, he's still leader of the priest. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, I think okay. the, the albums with The Ripper were like in the late 90s, I think. And <laughs> they weren't that good. I think one of them was called Jugulator. And uh, yeah, I, I don't, they, they didn't shine. Let's put it that way. Well, regardless, shout out to Tim The Ripper Owens. Great question. <laughs> uh, best driving album. Album to listen to as you're, as you're driving, as you're on a road trip. A great question here. I have a go-to which is Willie and the Family Live. It's a Willie Nelson uh, double album that certainly is more jammy than country, but I mean, it's Willie. So, I mean, you're obviously going to get that kind of old country flavor, but, you know, some really good stuff. And when, you know, driving to Northern Michigan or wherever it might be, whenever it's going to be an extended drive, you know, Willie and the Family Live is... Um, is a go-to. I think that's that's my favorite, and I think a, a top a top-notch driving album. I, I, my favorite driving song is by a band that I actually really don't like, but it's uh, already gone by the Eagles. 
That's the ultimate driving song. Great driving song. That's that's an awesome choice. Yeah, and then I would say anything by Golden Earring. You know, just anything, just popping Golden Earring. You know, um, <laughs> just just some obscure Golden Earring. Yeah, just the full, all the deep cuts, and just just go with Golden Earring. It's fine. From what are they from? Denmark, I believe. The Pride of Yeah, that that's Denmark, right? Yeah, or something. Um, what do you got on this one? Mine would be the album Start Something by Lost Prophets from 2004. It's just so complete, top to bottom. It, it's loud. I like to listen to very, very loud music on my drives. It, it had one hit on it, Last Train Home, which was a pretty big hit for the band. And Are you I, talking about the Pat Metheny song? Or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that one, too. And, uh, I, you know, air drums is a big part of the driving experience for me if I'm going to do a long drive and listen to an album. Uh, and it's a terrific air drumming album. Here's a question. Is Last Train Home by Pat Metheny a good driving song? I, I mean, it, if you want to fall asleep behind the wheel, yeah. sure. Yeah, but you it's know? got that little chugging, almost that, it's almost like Kraftwerky Autobahn-ish. Like it's, I don't know, it, but it's chill. So I don't know. Is it a, maybe it's a good nighttime driving song. Yeah. Maybe night drive. Mm. Maybe a good kind of airplane song, just kind of relaxing, maybe mm. more driving song. Yeah. But for me, a driving song and a driving, well, a driving album has to be loud and sort of have a little pound to it versus anything that's sort of moody, you know? And so, yeah, that would be my driving album. Here's one. How long do you guys spend preparing for episodes and how long does it take to edit, drop in the music, et cetera? Uh, well, I guess I'll kind of take this one first. The, we don't prep very much at all. Because quite honestly, a lot of what you're hearing are conversations that we have anyway, in a lot of ways, they maybe don't sound as, um, I guess, dare I say it professional, but, uh, you know, these are, I don't know if I'd use that word to describe it, but yeah, I mean, exactly. But you know, we, uh, you know, Nubs and I have, I mean, obviously we're twin brothers and we generally don't go a day without talking, even if it's for 30 seconds or whatever. I mean, it's pretty rare that we would go a day without some you know conversation over the phone but um so in that case we probably should prepare more but generally we get on tangents on a certain movie or a certain movie scene or a certain album or a certain band or whatever and this is it's kind of what we do so we we basically part of doing the the podcast is just saying we talk about this stuff all the time anyway might as well you know get it on wax you know but we basically decide an album, you know, a f- few days before recording it. Um, so we don't have, you know, we don't have like, here's going to be our next 10 episodes. We kind of, I think we both have an idea of what we might want to talk about, but we sort of decide on the fly or we'll think we were going to do one and we'll change our mind to do another. But typically I would say there are four or five days uh, where we know what the record's going to be. And you certainly do listen to it, particularly things that, that I haven't been as familiar with that nubs brought to the table a few days to listen to it, you know, make some notes on a few tracks or on a few thoughts that you want to make sure you say. Um, and then obviously I, I do some work on time stamping because when we play the song clips, I want to make sure that they're good clips, you know, and that there were sort of parts of the song that are meaningful or, or, you know, contribute to, to that particular clip. 
which you have to keep pretty short for music rights and those type of things. And typically when we record, it's, you know, the raw audio is a couple hours at the least and gets edited down, you know, to be, I think I, you know, my episodes are seem to be a little bit longer than Nubs's, but they typically have landed around like an hour and 20 minutes, I would say, uh, on average. So yeah, there's quite a bit of editing and, you know, there's quite a bit of post-production stuff and, and then editing probably takes, I mean, I probably spend, cause I primarily do the editing five or six hours a week, just scattered, um, to get it ready to post on Friday, which we typically post on Friday morning. And not everything we choose is because we like it as you can see, and as you'll continue to see, but you'll, you'll certainly see that next in next week's episode, but they are all albums that we have, for the most part, have some experience with. And so, you know, do we have to look up the names of the band members of the news? Yes. <laughs> That's not like knowledge <laughs> that we have. But do we have to look up, you know, the year albums came out and uh, track listings for a lot of these? No, that, that's, that's, those are all things that we know based on the experiences that we've had with these albums in the last 40-ish years. And so putting our useless knowledge to work. Exactly. Yeah. There's very little preparation beforehand and there's a lot of work after the fact and give T a ton of credit for that because he, he really handles most of that. Here's a good one. You ready? Is it okay to listen to the band you're going to see in the car on the way to the show? How about listening to that band in the car on the way home? What do you think, Dom? A very controversial issue here. Very controversial. In <laughs> fact, well, you could see the, uh, the media is rustling over that question. You can see it. Uh, there's, there's definitely some activity in the room. Let's see if we can capture it. Yeah. Big time question. Yeah, you can really uh, you can really tell when the uh, cameras flare up that that somebody asked a good one. Yeah, that that was that was a very edgy question. Um, very simple. On the way to the show, of course. You know, you want to get fired up for the show. Mm-hmm. You want to think about you know what songs you might hear, kind of get into the mood and groove of that particular artist. Do it. On the way home, ridiculous. With one exception, don't do it. Unless you're trying, and this is a lot easier now than it used to be, if you're trying to recreate the set list in your mind, if you didn't keep it in real time and you're trying to say, what song was that called that they played? I know the hook or I know the, you know, I know what they say during the verses, but I can't recall what the actual song was called. That would be the only exception is if you're trying to sort of recreate the set list and figure out which song it was if you weren't able to capture it in real time. But aside from that, you should not listen to the band that you just listened to for presumably two hours on the way home. It's crazy. What do you think, T? Um, so before the show, it's a great question. Before the show, I think it depends. Like if you're going to like a metal show or like a rock show, uh, then it's not only perfectly okay, it's probably encouraged. You know, doing, doing the parking lot tailgate to a rock or metal band, you know, perfectly appropriate. Yeah. If you're listening to like ride the lightning deep cuts before a Metallica show, that's cool. That's yeah. That's not only acceptable, it's encouraged. Um, If you're going to see like a pop group or a, you know, something more like that, then I would say, no, you probably shouldn't. You should probably have like a nice tailgate mix going in the lot. 
beforehand or as you're driving in. Like, like if you're going to see like Matchbox 20, you know, don't listen to Matchbox 20 on the way in. Or, you know, I don't know why they came to mind, but I would say um, just don't go see Matchbox 20. <laughs> like, let's, can we just say that? Please. I, <laughs> I, I completely am with you on as far as after the show, uh, unacceptable. I remember a few years back, you and I joined a couple of, of your friends to go see Fish. And I, I like Fish, but I remember we went to the show and we watched Fish play for like, you know, 10 hours and then got in the car and we were driving to find food. And the guy who was driving put Fish on. And I was just like, no, <laughs> like, yeah. no more Fish. Yeah. You know? yeah, that's that's yeah. We should have just thrown him out of the car. Good one here. What was a concert you were super excited about attending that ended up sucking? And flip side, a concert you weren't excited about attending that ended up being amazing. So I've I've talked about when we did the Tears for Fears episode, I talked a little bit about how disappointing Hall and Oates was and how extraordinary Tears for Fears was. So I, I kind of got a little bit of that in one night. Now I was expecting Tears for Fears to be pretty good. So I'm not sure that it was one where I anticipated that it might not be a good show. You know what? When I was living in New York City, um, I had a friend, and this is going back a bit, but I had a friend uh, drag me to a Maroon 5 show. And this was... Uh, they had only put out that their first album. So this was before they became real poppy and everything, but I liked them and I liked the record, but I wasn't like too fired up about going to see them. And I, I, I gotta say, I was really impressed with Maroon five that they were, this was back when they were playing instruments and, and, you know, they hadn't become mainstream. They were still playing. It was at Irving Plaza, which is not a huge, um, place, but certainly being up in New York, you'd heard of them. You'd heard the record. They had a couple songs on the radio and I kind of didn't really want to go, but I got to say like, they were awesome, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I think that, uh, Adam Levine's a pretty cool dude, really. Like, I've, you know, he's been on Howard Stern and he's pretty cool dude, actually, when you kind of take the time to hear him talk and hear his love of music and kind of get a sense for his personality. So yeah, that's one that comes to mind for me where I wasn't expecting much and actually came away thinking it was pretty good. So for me, the high expectations with the letdown would probably be the second time I saw Kiss. So I went to the Ohio State University, OH, and my freshman year, they opened a brand new arena. It's called Value City Arena still, but it was the new basketball slash hockey slash entertainment venue. And it was, you know, a block away from my dorm, which was really cool. And so this new venue, they started welcoming in bands and and Columbus being in central Ohio is a good spot for bands to stop. And it's one of the reasons I went there was because if you don't want to do Cleveland or Cincinnati, but you want to hit the Ohio market, you go to Columbus because really all of Ohio can find their way there because it's you know dead in the center of the state. So this year, the year that this opened, KISS brought its Psycho Circus tour to Columbus. And this was the reunion of the original lineup with the makeup. Now, a few years before, you and I went and saw KISS on the Revenge Tour. And that was with Eric Singer and Bruce Kulick. And, and the band was just awesome at that point. I and mean, of course, were, the, the, the most memorable part of that, we were, what, 12 years old, was... Yeah 
and boy, this tells you how different things were <laughs> back in, during these days was before I, I think what did trickster open up for kiss trickster and yeah. great white trickster and great white. So I think it was either in between trickster and great white or great white and kiss. I don't remember. Um, they had the camera out in the crowd and on the jumbotron, um, there were, uh, you know, various female kiss fans that were, um, exposing their, uh, breasts, if you will, to the camera up on the jumbotron and everybody would go, yeah. And of course we were 12, so we would go, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's, that's what I remember most about that kiss show, uh, was the, uh, you know, in between festivities that were taking place out in the crowd. <laughs> yeah, that, that was certainly memorable. And uh, so, and that show was kind of extraordinary, you know, it was your typical kiss show, but they were without the makeup. And even though there were lots of theatrics, the music was still really, really, really good. And the band at that point was tight and they were musicians at that point. Well, when they reverted back to the original lineup with the makeup, I, I was excited because of, you know, going to see Kiss again. And I went and the show was awful. I mean, it was just terrible. They, it was like watching a, you know, a bunch of old guys trying to recreate something that was well lost. And Peter Chris can hardly play the drums and Ace Freely. I'm not even totally convinced his guitar was plugged in. And it was just, it was kind of a disaster. And it really tarnished the image of the band because I saw them as kind of a lean, mean 90s band to that point. And then they became cartoon characters again. So that would be one that was very disappointing. And one that was the opposite, I would say, is the first time that my twin brother T took me to see Widespread Panic. Uh, I'd heard a lot about the band and hmm. everything I had heard on album was, was not really that impressive. It was kind of like, okay, so they're just sort of a Southern fried rock band sort of deal. And you literally dragged me <laughs> to see them. I mean, I flew to New York. <laughs> to go to back-to-back shows at Radio City Music Hall. And I had no idea how much I would appreciate that event because you see them live and you're like, wow, now I really get it. You know, the high level of musicianship and the, the fans are not annoying like other jam band fans, you know? And I walked away going, okay, now I get it. Now I understand the widespread panic thing. And we've since gone to a number of shows and I've enjoyed every single one of them. So I, I would say that was the one that reversed the disappointment. Glad to hear that, buddy. I went and saw him at the at Madison Square Garden. Uh, it was actually the night after Halloween. One of the best concerts I've ever been to, easily. Um, let's see here. Let's see here. You can only listen to one year of music again. What year is it? And tack on to that, what would be your dream concert for that year? Who opens? Who headlines? So for me, it would be the before mentioned 1997, which is a year I think most frequently visited on two twins in an album so far. And there's a reason for that because it's full of you know, tremendously important albums from really, really essential groups from the nineties. And it's probably a little bit of a surprise because, you know, I'm such a seventies guy and such a progressive rock guy, but there wasn't one year in the seventies that you would really put the ISO on and say, that's the one because it was kind of spread out between 1969 and 19, you know, 78 was like the Prague heyday, but 1997, I think is the perfect marriage of 
the grunge and post-grunge energy and rawness and emotion with a little more polish and, uh, and bands that were influenced by that, but also creating something a little bit more original. And so the show would be Oasis on the Be Here Now tour. So I would say getting to see a full set of them in that particular era would be yeah. really great. Yeah. Okay. So let's say this, the headliner would be U2 because they're on the pop tour at that oh, point. Wow. Oasis would open. All right. And then after the show, we'd go to a small club and go see <laughs> helmet on the aftertaste. <laughs> all right. Well, we, yeah, we can go with that. We can go multiple venues, you know, late night show. Um, you do have a soft spot for you too. We might have to, we might have to dive into that at some point. I'm very, very picky about my YouTube. Yes. I mean, there are. is YouTube that I truly hate that I just cannot yeah. listen to and it's all pretentious yeah. and bloated. But when they're good, yeah, there's some, yeah, I would can't, say it's I can't spot. blame you. Can't blame you. I'm going to go with 1992 because you had Dirt by Allison Chains, who we talked about a little. You had Check Your Head, which we did an episode on. You had Faith No More Angel Dust, which we, may talk about maybe you had the southern harmony musical companion which i just love that by crow's record you had copper blue by sugar this was a an extremely strong uh year for some really really top-notch albums now as far as the show you're kind of still in the in the heat of use your illusion one and two and i gotta say seeing guns and roses at this time, which I did not get to, um, which is too bad, which probably is good because there probably would have been like a riot at the show and, you know, cars <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. tipped over and set on fire and all kinds Little of Little 12 year old T might have been, uh, you know, <laughs> completely destroyed from that show. Yeah, I probably would have loved it. But I, I think Guns N' Roses headlining maybe with Faith No More opening um, with that, you know, I mean, they've kept most of their guys, but this was that. Um, the real thing, Angel Dust, Faith No More lineup that was just really, really stiff. So here's one. When is buying merch douchey, if ever? Are you allowed to wear the shirt purchased at a show as soon as you buy it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think buying merch is ever douchey. I, you know, it's a great way to support the artists and sometimes they have some goofy stuff, but you know, particularly these days with album sales, you know, not really being a, a profitability contributor for most artists, touring is the way to do it. And merch sales, as far as really how to kind of support the, the bottom line earnings for a band, you know, merchandise typically ends up being the way to do it. So yeah, I have no issues at all really with any merch, I suppose, even if they're selling coasters or, uh, you know, um, condoms is the most interesting merch seen, I ever bought. We've seen condoms, Duran, you know, Duran condom at the mm -hmm. 1993 show. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't put the shirt on. I always tuck it into my, uh, pants or shorts. I think one time I did it because I like spilled a beverage on my shirt I was wearing and kind of had to swap them. I, but uh, under just a regular circumstance, I, I don't, I don't think you should put on the shirt that you buy at the show, but I got no problem with merch. 
Yeah, I don't think it's ever. I love the question, by the way. I don't think it's ever douchey. I think a couple times it, it can be dumb. And that is when the band is selling like the $50 t-shirt. And and it's like, okay, yeah. last year or two years ago, whenever it was, we went and saw Tool. And, you know, the aptly named band, who I love, was selling shirts for like $45. Yeah. Or something like that. And it's like, come on, really? I mean, I still bought one. but You yeah. did. So I, and it wasn't, it certainly was not douchey, but it was dumb. It's yeah. Like it's been yeah. $45 for a tool shirt, you know? Well, Maynard's got those wineries. He's got to keep them running. Jeez, you know, those aren't yeah. going to, those aren't going to run themselves. Right. They've become awfully capitalists for, you know, being sticking to the man types. Oh, they, they sure have. And, and not to mention the tool army fan club, you know, where you pay money to get basically nothing, a patch. I think they send you maybe. But. Yeah, exactly. So. It, it can be dumb, but rarely it, I agree with you wholeheartedly on supporting the bands, especially nowadays, especially smaller bands, you know, like not as much of the bands that go through little Caesars arena, but those that come through St. Andrew's hall and the shelter. Yeah. Buy a shirt, you know, support them, keep them on the road. And then in terms of wearing the shirt, I would say only if you're cold. Hmm. Fair enough. Loved hearing you talk about 100.3 WNIC and pillow talk with Alan Aldman on episode four. What other radio stations did you grow up on? Well, obviously, you know, becoming sort of a lost art, I guess, is <laughs> is a terrestrial rock radio. Um, most of the stations uh, are changing formats and changing genres and those type of things uh, to country or to pop or whatever it might be. But obviously here in Detroit area where we grew up, I mean, we were spoiled with tremendous radio influence and i personally w 100.3 wnic which was the easy listening station i always loved um but you know the go-to's were you know probably 89x which was 88.7 which very sadly recently just a few months ago changed its format to a i believe a country station which is too bad because that was the alternative station right and that was um, you know, now they call it, um, on serious, they call it, uh, alt nation, you know, which is kind of, you know, what you would hear on 89 X. So a lot of new music and rather open-ended from a genre standpoint, you'd get some heavy rock, you'd get some, you know, light rock, you, you know, all kinds of things. And certainly throughout the nineties, a great station to, um, hear a great variety and check out a lot of new bands. I loved also 95.5, which was more of a pop station, but they had a segment in the evenings called the club 95 where they would play all eighties, you know, and I love eighties music. So, so that was, those are the ones that stick out for me. There were some great rock stations, you know, uh, 98.7 WLZ which eventually became like smooth jazz or something um, was probably my go-to rock station. Cause I think everybody in Detroit had sort of a go-to rock radio station. So those are the ones that come to mind for me, Nub. Yeah. When I was younger, it was wheels versus riff and I was a wheels guy 98, seven for sure. Cause they yeah. had a little more riff at that time was a little bit more like riff and wheels was a little bit more uh, diverse in the rock that they'd play. A lot of classic rock, a lot of modern rock, but then wheels went away and a very important station. You mentioned 89X, which was vital. I mean, there were so many bands that were introduced to the Detroit market through 89X. 
But a, a really important station for me was 94.7 WCSX, which was mm-hmm. the classic rock station, because yeah. they would play 60s and 70s music. And for a kid in the 90s to hear that stuff through radio, through FM radio, was really powerful. You know, and just thinking about all the songs that I was introduced to through 94.7 and then discovered the albums or the bands who created those songs. It's a long list. And so I would kind of go back and forth between 89X for the new and 94.7 for the old. But my go-to rock station was WLLZ until it went away. And that went away fairly early, unfortunately. But yeah, we were, you nailed it. We were so spoiled with Detroit radio. I mean, what what a great market we lived in for, for rock radio. Detroit doesn't get everything right. I think we can all agree with that. But uh, rock radio, man, they, I mean. I'd put Detroit radio up against uh, any other market throughout that time for really being a special um, rock radio market. Nobs, here's one for you. After the Toto episode number five, I watched Jeff Percaro's drum video on YouTube. It's amazing. You've talked about drummers having tone. His technique isn't anything to write home about. What makes his drum sound so amazing? Or was it the room slash studio tricks? Yeah, I love all these drummer questions. Nice. nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it definitely wasn't studio tricks. Uh, Jeff Brocaro, number one, his drums were always in magnificent tune. A lot of people don't realize this, but you have to tune a drum the same way you have to tune a guitar. And if that drum is out of tune, uh, the trained ear will know it. And even the untrained ear will be like, ooh, something does not sound right there. And Jeff Percaro's drums were always just perfectly in tune. He had a snare drum sound that was a nice pop and a crack. And his toms were almost tuned to notes. I mean, that's how beautiful the succession was when he would ride his toms. And he hand-selected cymbals that were perfect for the way that his stick hit those sounds. And so, you know, his, his drums were always in tune and he made good equipment choices. But the thing about Parcaro that gave him the unique tone was that he didn't hit very hard. And that really allowed the drums to sing. See, pounders, guys who hit hard like me, it's more of a thump, thud type of thing. But the, the, the tone is in the power. It's like Dave Grohl. You know, Dave Grohl, his drums sound like a, a big wave crashing. You know, it's just this huge, huge low end sound. Parcaro played light. And so. Everything he did allowed the drum to sing because it wasn't being destroyed by this huge hit. And he also was just on the nuts every single time and rim shots and where he hit the drum. I mean, he literally, if you looked at one of his drums, the stick would hit the drum in the same spot every single time. And you can't say that for most amateur drummers. So, yeah, that. If you're at all into the drums, I mean, you could, the video is not terribly long. I think it's 35 or 40 minutes and it's, it's worth the watch. I mean, it, that's a master at work and the sound quality is incredible. I mean, he's playing in a studio and he's got his full kit and, you know, certainly I, I think as we talked about earlier, the blend of talent with hard work, that's a perfect uh, blend of uh, exceptional skill with exceptional, you know, equipment and, and setup. Oh, here's a nice one. The Rupert Holmes two-part episode was really cool. How did that come about? Well, I'll, I guess I'll kind of take that one first. When we decided to do the podcast, you know, we we started talking about just preliminarily some records that 
are the type of thing that we want to talk about. And some were more known, some were more um, commercial, some were more acclaimed, but there were some that we just, you know, wanted to kind of educate people on. And I think that'll continue. And adventure was, was toward the top of the list. It was like, this is the type of thing that we want to talk about at some point. So it, it really was one of those that um, was part of the thinking behind doing this in the first place. And, you know, I had heard Rupert, as I told him on the Gilbert Gottfried podcast, and also I had heard him um, on, there, there's a podcast that kind of highlights individual songs. It's kind of like an entire episode about just a song. So it's kind of like what we do. Um, but instead of it being an album, it's a song and they try to have the artists on. And Rupert actually participated with this podcast on Escape, the Pina Colada song. And part of me was thinking, you know, I bet this guy is so sick of talking about this song. And and part of it was, boy, it'd be fun to have him on ours. And I could tell him, here's the best news of all. You don't have to talk about Escape. If you, if you go back and listen to that two-part episode, we spent three and a half hours with Rupert. Now we size that down to, I think about a total of around two hours and 20 minutes of a two-part episode. But if you notice, Nubs or I don't say escape or pina colada once. In fact, Rupert brings it up, I think a couple times uh, throughout, he's the one that brought it up. So part of it was, and I didn't really tell him this, but you know, it may have been kind of cool that like we wanted to talk about a record that, and I think he mentioned this from the onset, that was you know, not something as well known as Partners in Crime or Escape or Him or some of these songs and moments that really kind of defined him. So when I reached out, I actually just went on his website and filled out one of those like little, you know, email us forms, which you always wonder if they're actually going to go anywhere. And I heard back from one of his representatives within like a day. And I just basically said, we do this podcast. We want to talk about the adventure album and would Rupert be interested? And they were so responsive and so nice. And as you can hear, you know, Rupert himself was just such a nice, funny, humble guy. And we, you know, obviously we just clicked really well with them immediately. I mean, we had never spoken with him before um, what you heard. You know, that was literally our first time seeing each other or speaking with each other. Um, the only correspondence I had had with his team prior to that was via email and it was coordinating times and those type of things. So, um, yeah, I mean, amazing that he would take the time to join us. I think it turned out to be a, a great two-parter episode and yeah, a little behind the scenes on that. We, we actually had quite a bit of trouble getting the zoom connected. We had a couple different stabs at it and then Rupert joined and we couldn't see him and then we couldn't hear him and then we couldn't see him. And then we, it was kind of a back and forth and we had to do another link. And so <laughs> there was a little bit of, of rustling just to get everything online and T coordinates a lot of the aspects of the podcast. What well, the one thing I coordinate is the zoom and the links and kind of the tech background side of it. So that was a little frantic and we were already looking forward to it. But then we, there was this feeling of, gosh, are we even going to be able to make this happen? And then finally, we got Rupert in there and we could see him and hear him. And what's interesting probably for the listeners, T, is we maybe talked for 20 seconds before we started rolling. And there was a very quick exchange. But in that exchange, I do remember he reiterated this when we went 
on the record was he he did say it's just so cool that I, I get to talk about this album that really nobody seems to ever yeah. want to talk about. And that yeah. did impress him. And I think it touched him a little bit and allowed him to, I think, have a lot of trust in why we were there and what we were doing. It's really interesting. Um, some people really loved part one, you know, because we talked about the Beatles and, you know, those type of things. But some people really loved part two where we dug into the album. And, and I agree with you now, but I feel like part two was when he really started to realize like, oh, these guys like know this record. Like, you know, like this is not, hey, we, we you know, we giggle when we hear blackjack. Like this is like, you know, we're, we're talking about production here. We're talking about layering here. We're talking about musicianship here. I think a lot of people liked listening to part two where you really felt kind of him get into a groove of knowing that we had true appreciation for that record. So, you know, he said afterwards that, you know, it was truly an enjoyable experience for him. And that's all you hope for when you have uh, a guest like that, who takes the time the way he did, which, um, which was awesome. All right. This is a great one. This person says, all right, I'm open-minded. Convince me as to why you guys are so positive on Nickelback and what I'm missing. (laughs) I love getting that question. Because they're good. And, and anybody who says different, I think, is buying too much into the reasons to hate them, which I, I guess are that they're a little glorious and a little kind of a throwback to rock stardom. You know, Chad Krieger's kind of pose. And I mean, there's, if you want to find reasons to hate Nickelback, I'm sure you can find some reasons. And the sound is incredibly produced and very polished and radio friendly and blah, blah, blah. But how do you deny the strength of the band as songwriters and just as a rock band that's still going in, you know, the 2020s and beyond? I mean, you have to appreciate that. I just think this band has been branded with such an unfair tag, you know, such a such an unjust idea that like, oh, they're, you know, they're a band that you should hate. And if you like them, something's wrong with you. Why? Why? You know, why? And so. There probably is. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I mean, on this topic, you know, you're, I mean, they're, it's really flaring up out there. We just got our front page story for sure. So, (laughs) you know, there's become a thing where you're supposed to hate Nickelback if you're a true music fan. I don't understand that because they're one of the remaining rock bands that actually play their own instruments and go out there and put on big shows and, things like that and have bit and have a big sound and like we're supposed to hate them because the guy stands funny when he plays you know or because i don't know they're canadian i think it's an anti-canada thing personally you know <laughs> and i will not stand for anything anti-canada to our neighbors to the north what yeah no uh i mean look at people you know people just need to keep in mind here you know, you don't have to love their melodies. You don't have to love their lyrics. And I mean, whatever. But, you know, I mean, it's cool to like the Foo Fighters. And it's not cool for some to like Nickelback. But in many cases, symbolically, that they're, they're doing the same thing. They're playing instruments. They're playing rock. They're establishing an audience for rock and roll that is very, very difficult to find right now, particularly with younger people. They're bringing people to their shows playing big ass venues, 
whether we like it or not, I mean, they're one of the bands that is, you know, helping keep rock and roll alive in a time where that's fairly difficult and that needs to be respected to an extent. So my view on this is when I hear the Nickelback, whatever, it's like, well, then you know what? Besides the Foo Fighters, name another rock band that's keeping it alive meaningfully. Right. And there's some great rock bands out there, but you know, who's carrying the torch and those guys are they, you know, when you look at record sales, when you look at touring, when you look at, you know, kind of the worldwide appeal and I, and, and if one really does care about and appreciate the need to keep music played by instruments and some semblance of an alpha rock and roll attitude alive, which I think is very important for society. You should respect that. And the people that don't, I think, are just kind of missing it. And same as the Pearl Jam argument. You know, they've stayed together. They've remained. I mean, don't look now, but I think Nickelback's been around for about 20 years. That should demand respect. You know, Chad Krieger could have gone solo or band could have broke up and had drama. They haven't. They've stayed together. They still make albums that you want to check out. And so I'm not saying people have to like them at all. But don't dislike them just because the music world tells you not to like them, you know? And, and I think that's really what's happened with that band. Well, we see that in more things than just music, unfortunately, right? Uh, you know, think this way or don't like this or like this because, uh, you know, Twitter tells you to, uh, you know? So, all right, since you, this is a segue, I, I had this, uh, I have this uh, question on the docket and I'll just, you know, we've danced around it enough. I'll just field it. Toph, what is your deal with Pearl Jam? All right. I'll be quick because, you know, we may dive into Pearl Jam at some point. I don't want to ruin it. But my deal with Pearl Jam is that number one, they haven't put out a good album since 1996. Okay. So in my opinion, at least now that's not to say that they haven't good had good moments on their records or they haven't had some good songs. Cause I mean, they have, but you know, I think that the fact that they really haven't had a memorable, notable album since Vitology is important because they've put out a bunch and I've listened to them all. I've given them all a fair shot because I don't dislike the band and I certainly appreciate their early work and like their early work. And I do respect their longevity to your point, but you know, as far as a good sound album since Vitology, I haven't heard it. Okay, at least in my view, the Ticketmaster thing really rubbed me the wrong way. So I'm one of the, you know, that was a controversial issue where some were on the side of Pearl Jam and some were on the other. So I was one of those that said, what are these guys doing? You know, this is just, this is too much and too politicized. And you're trying to fight a fight that's, you know, not really yours to fight. In my opinion, it just became kind of ridiculous and and i think that between that and working with neil young which was a cool collaboration but you know sometimes collaborations can be overdone a little bit and they can get to the point where it's like all right is this like a true kind of you know combining of artists for the right reasons or are you trying to like be something that you're you don't see yourself as or are you trying to you know become something that you're not, but you wish you were, or those type of things. And sometimes I felt that that relationship to be a little bit artificial, like Neil Young was doing it to kind of be cool and hip. Um, and that kind of worked for him. Um, and, and that Pearl Jam was doing it to try and show that they're different from the grunge scene and all this. I, I don't know. I, some of that just felt to me to be a little bit, you know, calculated. 
And I just think, you know, Eddie Vedder is really annoying. You know, I mean, I, whenever I hear him talk, I think he's annoying. I think he says, I think he's so calculated in trying to make sure that he's saying things a certain way and in a certain vein that, um, uh, that helps him to, you know, kind of portray the image that he wants. I thought that firing Dave Aberzee was horrible. I mean, I think he was an incredible drummer, one of the better rock drummers of the nineties and the reasons why they fired him because he was like a good time and wanted to enjoy being in a rock band and, you know, and have fun while touring. I mean, you know, they basically like canned him because of that. I think that's really stupid. So I don't know. I, I just, I, I have a hard time connecting um, more, you know, philosophically, if you were to look at Pearl Jam's values as a band, they don't necessarily match mine <laughs> as far as, you know, what a rock and roll band should be, um, prioritizing. So, you know, I'm, I've heard their shows are great. I've never seen them live. I would like to someday nubs. I'm sure you'll drag me at some point and it'll probably be great. Um, but as far as it's not so much, you know, their music or these type of things, even though I do think it's, you know, concerning that they haven't put out a record in a long time. It's more that I just find myself very annoyed constantly with um, what this band is kind of saying and trying to stand for and trying to project. And, and P.S., I think Matt Cameron's an incredibly overrated drummer. So when they picked him up, it was like, oh, they got Matt Cameron and they're going to be around for 20 years. And you know, they're going to play these mixed sets and all. I mean, and it's kind of like, yeah, that's cool. But like, I don't know. I, I don't, I, maybe you can explain the Matt Cameron thing to me. Cause I don't, I don't think he brought anything to that band. I don't think they got better with him. I don't think that they, you know, they enhanced their sound or their approach because of that. So I thought that whole thing was overblown. Anyway, I could probably go on longer, but that's, <laughs> that's my deal with Pearl Jam. One thing I will say, Matt Cameron's not an overrated drummer. He's not a great fit for Pearl Jam. He's a very, very good drummer. Very strong. And Dave Eberzizi was so unique and so important to the sound. They've never been the same band since he left. And I agree with you. The firing of him was ridiculous. Yeah, that's that's fair. And you would know better. Um, all right. Just a couple more here, Nub, and then we'll wrap up. I, we're not actually going to get to everything, but, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll keep it. Uh, you know, so this episode doesn't uh, go on too long. Uh, Nubs, another one for you. Who turned you on to Prague at such a young age? And what are the essential Prague albums from unheralded artists you haven't talked about much on the podcast? Ah, well, you know, a Prague fan loves nothing more than to talk about bands no one's ever heard of, right? So <laughs> what really led me to it was the the commercial revitalization of some of the popular bands from the 70s. So when Yes came out with Owner of a Lonely Heart and I was, you know, four years old, I loved it and then said, oh, I want to know more about Yes. And then you get to the point where you can start buying the older albums and getting into those. And then you discover, you know, the, the actual Yes sound and, and what they were doing really in their creative heyday. Same with Genesis. You know, it's one thing to know Invisible Touch and understand, you know, where the band was in the 80s. But then when you realize, oh, Peter Gabriel was their lead singer for a while. And Peter Gabriel is that guy that makes the funny videos on MTV. And then you buy, and then there were three, or you buy Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, or, you, you, you know, you get further into the band's past and you say, whoa, you know, they were doing things that were much different than Invisible Touch 
or we can't dance. And then the beautiful thing about Prague is that you can listen to those albums over and over and over again and hear something new. You know, I, I remember writing a paper in college about how listening to progressive rock has influenced my entire critical thinking skill because you can't really listen to certain albums over and over and over again and hear something new. But in progressive rock, you can because the instrumentation is so complex and the structures are complex. The albums are long. They require patience. The way you can dive into Prague is just so huge. And what goes into progressive rock? I think it's anything that is challenging in terms of structure, in terms of song times. Some might say in terms of lyrical content, I don't really care as much about that, but it's music that really challenges itself and challenges the listener to go to another place versus just what's considered to be acceptable uh, in three or four minute forms. And so with all that being said, a few things that I would recommend for people to get into. Obviously, if you're dipping your toe in the prog water, you know, Yes, Genesis, King Crimson, Jethro Tull, uh, some of the bands that are very obvious. But if you want to take things a little bit deeper, you could get into a lot of the Krautrock sound uh, coming out of Germany in the 70s. So bands like Can, Noi, uh, some of the electronic things that would eventually follow some of the early craft work that we've talked about. Can's amazing. If I mean, if anybody out there even leans toward liking or wanting to get sort of interested in some of these things, they, they're a must. For sure. Yeah. You know, a, a band called Kron is a really important band out of the Kraut rock scene. If you like the more of the symphonic orchestral side, you know, Eloy is a band to get into. There's, there's a lot in that particular world. The cool part about that world is, you know, you dip your toe in the water, then before you know it, you're head deep in some obscure stuff uh, from Europe, which a lot of it tends to come from. Anybody who's just a little stale in their music right now, just looking for something that is unique, different, obscure, new, you know, get into some of the prog stuff because it's a great world to get into. And then you're reading books about it and watching documentaries about it. And then you become a full-fledged nerd like I am. And who doesn't want that? <laughs> Good stuff, man. Um, all right. Clay on episode 11 was awesome. There's no way I could have gotten my kid to sit still that long. Listen, I remember the magic of editing. Okay. I can't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't get him to sit still either. And, you know, we, we were able to, uh, you know, present that in a way that made it sound like he was, you know, not being a seven-year-old at the time, you know, pain in the ass, but no, it was, it was awesome to, to have him on. I was, I was proud of his performance on uh, episode 11. As but, you should have been. It was great. It was super fun. <laughs> but the question is, how do you plan to get your kids into good music from the past? And we, we talked about it a little bit um, when talking about Foo Fighters and a few other things, but you know, I think that as um, parents that grew up in the nineties you know, start to be able to influence their kids, which is kind of right now, frankly, you know, I think in the next five years will be really interesting. It's going to be fascinating to see how many of them, not just, you know, indoctrinate them into some of the music of their heyday throughout the nineties, but also, you know, the classic rock stuff that you talked about earlier. And Nubs, you've you've spent some time in your career as a school teacher, a junior high school teacher. So I'm kind of interested in your take on this, on what you see. But you know, it's a little scary right now to think of 
you know, kind of the generation coming up and getting their music from, you know, video games or, um, you know, being so dependent on iPads and tablets and song libraries and these type of things, you know, I think it's just going to get harder and harder for kids to be exposed um, to, to rock music and, and radio stations, as we talked about earlier, are changing formats and it's, it's not going to get any easier. And it's really going to be on the parents to make sure that that's introduced. And so I will say some of these avenues that exist now, like Amazon music and Spotify and Apple music, and these ways that you can basically pull up an album and get it are great. I mean, I, I you know, I, I am not going to knock the streaming game. I am all in on it because, you know, you can pull something up and dial something up and not just have the single or the song, which was kind of the way it was a, a couple few years ago. Now you can have the entire record. So I think there are ways now to um, have access to full albums, have access to bands and have access to to genres and things from the past where if you just make a little bit of the effort to ensure that your kids learn about, you know, some of these bands or learn about some of these styles of music and at least get it in front of them, you're giving yourself a chance. Now, where they go from there, who knows? And pop culture works in strange ways and social media works in strange ways. But I do think it's on the parental units of the world um, that are now in their late 30s, early 40s to do what they can and use the avenues that exist to your advantage. You know, there are drawbacks to Spotify artist highlights and Spotify playlists and Apple playlists and all these things that exist that are going to get you focused on the things that are sort of hot at the moment. And there are certainly some interesting odd genres out there, but use those platforms to your advantage. I would say to make sure that, um, the the accessibility and the wide catalogs that are available, you know, it's actually a better time than ever resource wise to get that music in front of your kids. You just have to do it. So I see it very differently than that. Uh, I think that the way to introduce young people to music in 2021 and beyond has very little to do with the access of the things that they're comfortable with. Meaning you know, it's amazing to me how much my nine-year-old can navigate a tablet and navigate apps and do all those things. And they're going to be able to do that. What you have to do is, is very similar to what we experienced, T, when we were 12 years old. You have to be introduced to the things that you cannot access without effort and intention. And that is going to live shows. You know, you can surf around YouTube all day and Spotify and Amazon Music and all those things. And kids will do that by nature because that's their language. What they can't do and what they must be introduced to is the live experience. Get the tablet out of their hands, yeah. get them in a car and drive to Pine Knob and take them to see shows. And two things. Number one, they'll be blown away by the in-person experience because everything now is virtual. I mean, hell, even the last year, school has become a virtual experience for them. You've got to get them with their own eyes, seeing and hearing and experiencing a show. The other thing too, is that limits the access because until they're 16 and can start driving themselves and buying tickets to shows, they're going to be reliant on you to take them to that, which makes the whole thing just a little more special. And that's so important with young people nowadays. You've got to remind them that you can't just have access to everything. 
Some things take intention or a car ride or a ticket or whatever. Those moments are what they will remember. They will not remember surfing around YouTube, listening to albums. That's an important reinforcement, right? And that access is, is great, but that will only support the experiences they have outside of that. And going to shows are those experiences. I plan on taking my girls to, you know, St. Andrews Hall at some point and just saying, here, here's, here's what a real rock show is like and introducing them to that and get them out of their house, get them away from their devices and give them that experience and they'll never forget it. It's a fantastic point. And the only thing you got to worry about with that nubs is, is a uh, beak starting a mosh pit. So, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Throw me in the uh, mosh pit. Pass me around. Pass me a crank it up. Right. Um, here's a good one. Cool. Notable songs you put on a mixtape for a lady. Yeah, we ref- we've referenced this a little bit in certain episodes, mm. right? Mm. Well, I certainly was a mixtaper. I mean, that was kind of one of my moves, as we've touched on a few times here. There were always the sappy kind of tunes, but, you know, for the most part, I think both of us were often trying to put kind of cool stuff on there. You know, it wasn't really like love songs so much as it was like cool songs with with feeling. I mean, obviously, I liked putting a lot of, you know, 80s stuff on there because some of that's just fun and memorable and, you know, upbeat stuff and kind of slower stuff. I mean, you know, that that was always kind of a good move. One time I uh, <laughs> I made a tape for, uh, you know, what was my girlfriend at the time in high school and it was all Prince songs. That was a memorable one. I did like basically a full Prince mixtape. Nubs, you ever put like, you know, typo or uh, anything, you know, really lofty on t- I think you told a story once about, what was it? You put something on a mixtape and you were a little bit like, this will really tell the tale of, uh, of whether or not this, uh, this gal has good taste. I forget what, I forget what band it was. Uh, typos love you to death was a regular on mixtapes for me. Ah, nice. Yeah. I would usually edit out with very careful tape editing the, the opening uh, verse just to make sure that, you know, everything was okay there <laughs> on the osmosis episode. I mentioned ghost behind my eyes was a mixtape song. Oh, that's the one. Yeah. 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 That, that was one where it was like, okay, we're going to find out, you know, and uh, failed miserably, <laughs> of course. For me, there's a, there's a couple go-tos that are almost automatics. One of them is the greatest mixtape song of all time. And, you know, dudes out there, if you don't believe me, just do it. And that is a Space Age Love song by A Flock of Seagulls. Mm, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, another one that is a real go-to that always delivers is a rather obscure 80s song, but easily one of my favorite songs of the 80s. And that is... Boy Meets Girl, Waiting for a Star to Fall. Yeah. You know, how do you not like that song? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So th- those are two that really uh, have probably made an appearance on every mixtape that I ever made. And, and like you, I was a mixtape guy for sure as well. And, you know, another one that was, that was probably the third of, of those three, I would say, is The Ghost at Number One by Jellyfish. Just because who, who would possibly not like that song, you know? Yeah. Amazing song. Well, another band maybe we should talk about someday. Um, What's Your Name by Boston. I believe I used quite a few times. Absolutely love that song. Winger is a great mixtape band, you know, especially if uh, 
if the special lady is kind of moderately into, uh, you know, hair metal or any of that sort of eighties rock, uh, you can really get some good mileage out of winger. And then of course, Nob. I mean, how can we talk about this without highlighting Charlie Peacock? You know, great usage <laughs> of that from, from me, uh, at one point. But I like that you put C Peacock. You didn't want to yeah. be too corny, right? That's C. right. That's right. That's a, that's a shout out to LL out there. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see Peacock. That actually was fun. I mean, back in the day, kind of taking the time to, I think I talked about the 80s tape, um, which was not a girlfriend mixtape. That was just something that like became legendary that everybody kind of, we'd just pop in in the car at, at parties or whatever. But putting together a a compilation like that and thinking about you know, song progression and what's the good opener and what's the good second track and what's the good closer. It was always fun. You know, I was, I was like thoroughly enjoyed that process. I mean, even my, my, my wife, current, current spouse, um, you know, we met wasn't more than 10 years ago that we met and I, you know, I made her two CDs, uh, you know, within the first few months of us dating. So hopefully that doesn't become a, a lost art. You know, maybe now people just text songs to each other, whatever, text YouTube clips to each other. But, uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun back in the day. You know, you had the CD, the little combo boom box with the CD player and the cassette and you could, you know, push the press down the record and the play button and record what was playing on the CD. I mean, it was, it was a good time. A couple more here. Uh, what concert were you supposed to go to that you didn't? And you regret it forever. Hmm. God, there, there really are a bunch in retrospect because you look back, it's like, oh, I wish I would have bought tickets for that. Or, you know, I, I wish when I was 12, I would have been more into that band. I mean, when Genesis came for the, the Way We Walk tour, it was 1992. And I really wasn't that into them. But I look back and I'm like, oh, I wish I would have gone because I think I probably could have found a way. So there's there's kind of that category. But in terms of like specific tours where you had a chance to go and you said no or there was another circumstance, there'd be two. One would be Oasis on the What's the Story Morning Glory tour at the Palace of Auburn Hills in 1996. Th- that was, you know, I had friends that were going, could have gone, should have gone, didn't go. And as it turns out, that was, you know, one of the most legendary tours that the band did. The other one was when I was in college, there was a great tour that came through. It was the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Foo Fighters. And it came to the before-mentioned Schottenstein Center, Value City Arena. Bought tickets, was really excited to go. The day of the gig, they announced that Dave Grohl had gotten sick and the Foo Fighters had to pull out. But the show was going to go on with just the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I was like a decent Chili Peppers fan, but not huge. And so it was like, okay, so you mean like, like either don't go to the show or like Foo Fighters aren't going to come back and make it up or anything like that. No, it was basically like go to the show, you know, or you could get your tickets refunded. And all my friends were still going because they were big Chili Peppers fans. So we went and they were okay. But the whole time I was just like, I can't believe I'm not going to get to see the Foo Fighters because I hadn't seen them yet to that point and didn't get to see them that night and did not get to see them at all until the Wasting Light Tour. Like, a few years ago, finally got to go to a Foo Fighters show. But that one always sticks with me because it's like, wow, that was really bad luck that 
Dave Grohl, you know, gets sick or whatever and don't get to see him and <laughs> then have to go many years and really didn't catch them in that early prime that they had. So, yeah, I think I've mentioned it. We were supposed to, it was going to be Clay's first concert. We were supposed to see them in October. And of course that got canceled. So big goal for us in 2021 is to see the Foo Fighters. You know, the only one that really comes to mind, we've done a pretty good job of this, you know, and, and obviously I lived in New York City for uh, four years and just had a chance to see tremendous shows from big bands, small bands playing big venues, small venues. I mean, it's a, while I was there, it's an incredible city to be able to experience. I mean, almost on a nightly basis, you can go to a show. Um, so I was able to check a lot of things off the list. Um, but you know, we were in Las Vegas for your bachelor party going back. Shoot. What was that? Uh, 12 years ago, 2008. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and we had tickets to see typo and you know, they, they were on, you know, they, they weren't great at the time. Peter was struggling pretty heavily with some of his, uh, health and drug issues. And, and my understanding was it wasn't a great tour for them, but little did we know that a couple of years later, we wouldn't have the opportunity. Um, we were there for your bachelor party and we were having a good time and we kind of got sidetracked with other things and we just sort of decided to scrap the show. And I wish we wouldn't have, you know, I mean, we were with a group of people and you and I were going to split off and go to the show and then come back and meet back up with everybody. And we didn't, and I regret that. We but it's did even weirder than that because in typical Vegas, the show actually was like a daytime show. And we didn't entirely realize that. And by the time we even thought about going, it was like the earlier days of social media or whatever. And we were able to see that they had literally already played. I mean, it was just, a, it was like a bad circumstance yeah, all around. It was, it was, it was a day show and we thought it was a night show and we thought we'd be able to get to it. And then we found out we couldn't. And now looking back, they played a terrible set. I mean, there were a couple things that would have been fun to see, but it was like seven songs and it wasn't yeah. very good. Yeah. But still it would have been, you're right. That was definitely one that got away for sure. Well, and it could have been a blessing in disguise because what it did do is it made it so, I mean, hell or high water, we were going to that Halloween show here in Detroit, which ended up being their last concert. And when we've talked about before, it was just an incredible night for us. So, you know, maybe if we had gone in Vegas, we had said, oh, they, you know, maybe we'll do something else on Halloween night. It, it really forced us to say, we screwed that up. We should have gone and I don't care what happens or what other opportunities we have. We are going to that Harpo show. So maybe it, it turned out to be a good thing all in all and kind of forced us to go to what was probably one of the more memorable concert nights for us ever. All right. Why don't we do actually, there's one quick one. Uh, somebody asked, would you guys ever consider doing more than one album from the same artist? If so, who are the possibilities? I mean, sure. I, I, I think we absolutely will. At some point, and you know, we're probably getting closer than not being um, 30 episodes in. But yeah, I think we will definitely be more than willing to look at additional albums from bands that we've already showcased. I mean, certainly, you know, Toto comes to mind. I'm sure we could do another Toto record. Um, Typo certainly comes to mind. You know, I could see us doing more Phil Collins related stuff, of course. You know, maybe Metallica. 
certainly Pink Floyd, certainly Rush. For, so, for me, it's Rush. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and Pink Floyd to an extent too, but we did Counterparts and there's two or three other Rush albums that I think we would both love to explore and do an episode on. So I, I would say I would put money on that. Our first repeat could very likely be Rush because I think people would be interested in hearing another era of Rush. We chose Counterparts for a lot of reasons. It is a little bit more obscure and it's more 90s, but it'd be great to do something more in their wheelhouse from the 70s. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. Last question. Last question. And Nubs, I've enjoyed this. Hopefully, hopefully you guys have too. Um, and, and again, to reiterate what Nubs said, we, we really do appreciate the uh, questions and hopefully you've you know somewhat appreciated the answers. But here's one that we'll close with. You can bring back one artist, not with us anymore, for one show only. Who's the artist? What's the show? What's the opening song? And what's the last song played during the final encore? So a classic music question, one that anyone passionate about music has given a lot of thought. And my answer has not changed since I was 11 years old. And that would be James Marshall Hendricks. Mm. And I would like to see him with the experience. Although I would take the band of gypsies if I, you know, if I had to settle for that, but I would prefer the experience. Okay. The opening song far and away would be what he opened Winterland with when he played there, which is fire. It's a great opener because I think Bill Graham came out, introduced the Jimi Hendrix experience. It was just a killer opener. And the closer would be, gosh, I hope everyone would choose as the closer for a, a Jimmy show, which would be a 28-minute version of Voodoo Child with the extended guitar solo at the end, just like he closed Woodstock with. That, and that would be it for me. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I would, uh, I would have to go. Actually, this is one I've pretty much had as my answer for many years now as well, and that would be Bob Marley and the Wailers. The opening song would be Positive Vibration. And the closing song would, of course, be jamming. Nubs, that was fun, man. And I guess, uh, you know, that puts episode 31 uh, listener Q&A in the books. I think you'll have an album for us uh, here on tap for the next one, eh? I will have an album for us in episode 32. And uh, let's just say you and I are going to have a field day picking apart this particular record. Mm. Let's Let's just say that. Mm, cliffhanger teaser feather tickle i like it <laughs> i like it well thanks buddy that was uh it was fun to talk through those things hopefully you guys enjoyed it and we do again appreciate the questions and it's really important as we continue to do the old podcast here you know the more engagement the better through twitter you know leaving us a review on apple that stuff's really important and we uh definitely appreciate it and let us know as always uh if there's something you want to hear about uh, beyond just this kind of fun Q&A episode uh, as we get back to our regular album cadence here. You know, if there's something, uh, a band or a record you want to hear us talk about, please let us know. Nubs, thanks again, buddy. And we will uh, see you and we will see everybody uh, for episode 32 here on Two Twins and an album. Two That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. 
We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.